Well, welcome. This is the School of Theology. Uh, This is uh, October 1st, and we are uh, together looking at the doctrine of man. And in uh, previous weeks, we have looked at uh, the origin of man and God's sovereignty and creation. We've talked about the unity of the human race, the psychosomatic man of, uh, or unity of man with himself, and the affinity of man with the lower creation. I'm going to pick up again at the preeminent dignity of man, uh, which is item five. But let's open up in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do ask that you might uh, help us to think your thoughts after you tonight. Uh, You have made us fearfully and wonderfully. Uh, You leave us uh, uh, not uh, having confusion and doubts about who we are, but you, you call us and speak to us truthfully about our being made in the image of God. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to see and feel from your word something of the importance uh, that we have because of you and what you have made us and called us to be, and that we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the fifth point is is that there is a uh, uh, there is a preeminent dignity to man. God has made us, and He's made us in His image. Uh, he He's made us from our first father Adam, and He has made us. Uh, with a bodily and a non-bodily part, a body and a spirit or soul. And so there's a unity of the two, and that is human being. But God also uh, speaks to us of our uh, after our affinity with the lower creation that we're made from the dust of the earth. Welcome, welcome. That we're made from the dust of the earth, and therefore we have a basic chemistry about us. Uh, we're rooted to the soil. Uh, we are uh, related, therefore, to the other aspects of creation, like the animals uh, who die and decay and go back to the soil. Um, this uh, this truth about our origins indicates that we're dependent on on our environment. Um, if man goes anywhere else in the universe other than his his little spaceship home uh, Earth that God has placed him on, then he must take something of his environment with him. We must take something of our world in air and and food and water. It has to go with us as well. Uh, God has. Um, God has made us with a connection to uh, the rest of creation and to uh, uh, the other what was made on the other days of creation. But the fifth point is that, that man is preeminently uh, full of dignity. Man is the crown of creation. He is the uh, last to emerge on the sixth day. Uh, he's created, uh, the text tells us, in Genesis, uh, uh, in the midst of divine uh, dialogue and discussion and debate. Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And so we have dignity that comes from God. God chooses to make us like himself, and he didn't have to do that. That dialogue doesn't take place uh, in the record on any other day with any other thing that God made. He doesn't talk that way about Mother Earth. He doesn't talk that way about the birds. He doesn't talk that way about the creeping things. He talks that way about man. Uh, God has made human beings with a measure of dignity which sets us apart from the herd. And God has made us in a way that indicates his own forming, his his fashioning 
of man. It's not a haphazard thing, but a fashioning of him. Um, Chapter 2 and verse 7 of Genesis, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So there's a, there's a movement of God's hands. He forms, he makes us, he shapes us. There's intentionality, uh, there's formulation, uh, and there's also the dignity of him breathing into us. There's something that he has given us which is very special that uh, there's no indication he does for any other aspect of the creation. Uh, The sky and the heavens have not come out of the mouth of God uh, as would have been the case in some of the um, conflicting um, stories of origins of the universe and the cosmos. Um, Every human orifice seems to have a a story in Mesopotamian history about uh, the world having come from there. I'll leave your minds to to wander over the possibilities. It's just a a strange thing. But uh, here we have the inspired record and we're told that man is the one into whom God breathes the breath of life. There's direct divine involvement. And there's a cultural mandate. Uh, that is given to our first father Adam and therefore to us. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 And here, in the very short, um, pricey summary of the creation of man in Genesis 1, we move... Uh, Uh, from God deliberating uh, to God commanding that we be fruitful and multiply and giving us this cultural mandate to subdue the earth, to have dominion, to fill it, etc. Now we we turn to chapter 2 and we get the more detailed creation account and that more detailed creation account uh, gives us uh, uh, other facts which are also true. It's not that these two stand in tension with each other. Uh, They're on different magnifications. You know... uh, A child who for the first time looks through a microscope, it's a very exciting thing. Um, uh, You take a drop of of rain puddle water and you put it on a little slide and put it under a microscope and that little clear um, drop of water under the microscope is just teeming with life and all sorts of strange shaped creatures, amoebas, protozoan, etc., you know, there's an interesting history of this. Uh, um, you can have two contrasting things, that microscop- macroscopic view and then a microscopic view, and you see much more detail. And that's the way I would describe the, gen- the difference between Genesis 1, which is more macroscopic, and Genesis 2, which is more microscopic and very interested and fascinated in focusing on the origin of man and the drama of the life in the garden of man. And that's entirely appropriate. Uh, We may think that uh, the largest galaxy would uh, be the thing. The largest part of creation would be the thing that would dominate uh, uh, the text and the thinking and the time of God when he looked at things in more detail with us. Uh, We might think it would be the largest of the creatures, and therefore there's going to be some elephant or some whale, some great creature that uh, would be the thing, a great big creature that would be the thing God concentrates on. But no, he... He concentrates, uh, he speaks and interacts over the crown of his creation, over the one on whom he has placed his image as no other, and that is man. And so the the Genesis 2 account gives us more detail. Uh, Just as an aside, you you do know the history of uh, the inventor of the microscope, Sir Leeuwenhoek. Wonderful uh, fellow who was... uh, 
very skilled in lens making and um, and when he made his little lens and put it uh, with his little screw device in order to to reach the perfect focal point you know so that you could uh, you could see in these two lenses uh, what was in that drop of water he he did not see the detail that we can see today of the the little hairs on a protozoa or the the inside nucleus of an amoeba all he saw were all these spots moving around and and uh, he then wrote a great theological treatise announcing to the world that he had finally solved, through the use of science, the dilemma theologically and philosophically over how God can be everywhere, uh, uh, and yet we can be there too. Because when he looked in his microscope and he saw all those little moving black specks, he said, Aha! That's God! That must be the divine that's in all those specks. And... Uh, then when he built a little better microscope, he learned he wasn't, he didn't have it right. Um, hey, Duncan, I have a question. Yes. We, we say that God creates ex nihilo, something from nothing. And, and when God, everything is described, it's talked about as being created. <coughs> Yet when it describes man, it says that he formed man from the dust of the ground. So what significance do we place on the fact that he described using the dust to form well, I think it does indicate how we're tied to our environment. I think it's also something that is just simply utterly humiliating. Um, uh, it is the stage on which we live, and God is proleptically conditioning what, uh, what that stage is like to suit the ends of what is going to happen on that stage. Man is going to hear the words, In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die with the uh, covenant of works. And man is going to eat of that fruit uh, by the decree of God that is mysterious and we don't understand uh, how that can be and yet we exercise our wills and we do so freely but yet yet God is a sovereign, uh, the sovereign Lord and, and He has decreed these things. And man will, our first father did, indeed die and he decayed and he returned to the dust. And so there's a real spiritual lesson set up by the whole uh, means and method of creation. Um, I, I will say as somebody who in, in my first studies I studied uh, uh, material ceramic and materials engineering and, and did uh, work at MIT in Boston, the PhD program there under, under <coughs> Professor David Kingry, who was the, the top man in the field in the world. And, and it, it always... Uh, it always encouraged me to remember that because God had made the created order and He'd made us part of it and integral with it, that uh, that there is inescapably uh, spiritual implication as we study the created order. Sometimes people try to divide the faculties, like Kant did. Science is one thing, and theology another is another, and the only safe way to live is to never let the two have anything to do with each other. The, the only problem with that is is that theology is made by God and Creations made by God too. There, there's one, one divine Creator who is uh, sovereign and over both of the realms, and therefore there is, there must be ultimately some reconciliation of the two in Him. So the the safe, easy way, as it were, of just dividing the faculties and not not facing all the hard questions. Uh, um, I think the existence of God and the fact of creation makes that impossible, particularly the origin of man in the dust. Um, yeah, I could say more, but I, I think that's I think that's a fair answer. Um, when you're studying man, you have to remember his dustiness. 
um, that he's chemistry, biology, he's physical, he's genetic, there's structural issues, um, and there are therefore going to be similarities between man on the one hand and the lower animals on the other. They they die and they decay and they go back to dust, and, and that lets us know that there's some commonality there. Now, the commonality is not in, in evolutionary origin, per se. It is a, it is a commonality in the will and purpose and, and uh, the, the means of the Creator that He Himself uh, has designed the world this way. So, um, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, I think it's not an invalid thing to argue that uh, um, given the nature of man... Um, there are some intuitive ways in which we know our connection to the created order. Uh, we eat them. They eat us. And uh, some of them are small, brown, with long tails and wet noses. And uh, they lick you in the nose in the morning. And uh, you know you have something of a very strange and interesting uh, relationship to them. There's a connection there. They're, we're not... Uh, Alien and divided from everything else in the universe, uh, the created order, the physical order, we're we're together with them. I want to correct what some people may pick as an error. God didn't create the animals ex nihilo. He created them out of the earth. If you look at chapter 2, verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord... God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. So he actually created them out of the ground too. So there's a commonality there uh, that we have with others. Now, and, and again, we need to recognize, I think it's a mistake for Christians to not recognize that commonality and take it, that physicality, and take it very seriously. Otherwise, we have difficulty recognizing um, that there are structural and functional parallels. I've, I've always heard, you know, that in an emergency situation, if you don't have a doctor around and you got a vet, everything's going to pretty much be okay. Is that, is that right, John? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a cousin um, in Farmville, Virginia, and I can remember going for family reunions and uh, witnessing him in his office working on dogs and cats and I could I could kind of relate to that we got just a little peek but then he came out to the family dairy farm and he did things to cows I just didn't know could be done I, I was I was shocked and amazed by the ways that he was able to help those farm animals that were in much distress and and there are enormous lines of continuity um, the Bible teaches that long before Darwin, and we have to understand to take that seriously. Otherwise, what we do is abandon the field, and it it can it can feel as if um, uh, the Bible was ignorant of structural parallels. Um, ignorant of what? Of structural parallels between animals and and um, uh, and human beings. I I don't know anything about uh, dog cells. Uh, microscopically, but I have a sneaking suspicion they're not utterly alien and different than ours. Uh, uh, we uh, clipped the toenails of our dog a little too closely one time, and, and it was red blood, not green Martian blood, that came out. And that bespeaks of a whole lot of continuity. Now you're in trouble with him. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think that's fair to say across the, uh, across the animal kingdom. You know, there's enormous continuity there on um, a physical kind of level. There's that same continuity across the entire cosmos. 
it is, it is amazing how it is replicated over and over again as you get smaller and smaller. It, it was uh, just on that physical level, um, uh, one of the ways that, um, or one of the jobs I had at MIT was helping uh, Professor Bernie, Bernie Wunsch. I was his, in his class on crystallography. It's a fascinating class. I'd never had one before, shamefully, uh, in my undergraduate education at Clemson. And, and uh, I, I was a man about a week or two ahead of a running pack of dogs who were chasing me and wanting to devour me. They were uh, MIT undergraduate students. And I was just able to stay stay right ahead of their bite because every homework that they had to do, if they got the least bit of frustration, they would come to me and I had to know how to do it. And the difficulty was, uh, I'll be blunt, uh, some of them, many of them, maybe all of them were they had much more raw computing power than I had, and uh, I had more experience and I had more learning uh, in broader areas than they had, but I had to stay just ahead of them. And just three-dimensional space and the order and pattern in which physical things can be placed in that space makes Enor- has enormous implications for physically what is possible. Did you know that uh, uh, two-dimensional, they teach crystallography, uh, not by starting with three-dimensional, you know, body-centered cubits, face-centered cubic, that kind of thing. They start with one-dimensional crystals, like a dot or two dots in a row. Then they go to two-dimensional crystals, and you study wallpaper. Did you know that all the different kinds of wallpaper in the world, if they have a pattern to them, that pattern can be very simply described in terms of just a handful of operators. There are just a handful of basic crystal patterns in wallpaper, and that becomes the basis for all the different minerals um, and is enormously influential in, in pharmaceuticals and, and uh, geology and etc. more generally. So there is continuity across the created order, uh, and particularly uh, the scriptures here highlighting continuity between uh, man and the lower creation. Uh, about the dignity of man, let me, let me further say that, uh, uh, that man is one uh, who... Um, uh, is not just an animal, is not just a machine or a computer or some kind of device. Man man has a preeminent dignity. Those are useful analogies for different aspects of things. You, you, could, uh, you could draw uh, graphs and you could do a video of the movements of my arm. You could uh, come up with a point or a frame of reference. You could describe the motions that I'm making right now in terms of... Um, Mathematical equations, all of that's wonderful. Um, you could write computer programs and, and you could project uh, holograms doing the same sort of movement. All that's very nice, but at the end of the day, man is more than a hologram. Man is more than a robot or a machine. Man has preeminent dignity uh, because he's made in the image of God. Uh, he has had the breath of God breathed into him. His role is unique. He's to preach the glory of God. Uh, He is to give glory to God as he thinks and interprets the created order and leads it. Um, And we need to recognize that in dealing with others, we cannot abandon um, a recognition of the fact they're made in the image of God and they're important. This is, this is, uh, it sounds strange perhaps to you, but you know, um, different people have different ways of sizing up a man. 
Sometimes they'll size them up by how they're dressed. You know, I, I went home and I put on this tie because, because I felt guilty because the last few times we've met, Dr. Stacy was dressed a lot better than I was. And so I, I had to put this tie on. Some people, somebody uh, sizes up folks by the way that they dress. I'll tell you, one way I have always, and I, and I saw this in my father, and it's something that I have, I have valued, and it's theologically based, which is uh, I size up a man by the way he treats uh, the janitor and the maid. I size up the man by how he treats the person that works on in his yard. Do people... Do, are people viewed as people or are they just things? Little pawns to be moved around on the table. If that's the case, something's wrong because we're not recognizing the preeminent dignity of man. Even the most humble man has the image of God stamped upon life and heart, and that is to be honored for the sake of God and to be recognized. Um, uh, you know, uh, I could rail against some of the management techniques, like kind of Marxist management techniques, power control issues, the way people are manipulated and kicked around. It's easiest to see in the old-fashioned ones where people are brutal and cruel. Uh, But uh, uh, there are economic and political implications inescapably uh, to the uh, image of God in man. And that ought to make an impact in how we treat shop clerks, how we speak to them. Do we give them eye contact? Do we show any concern for them as human beings or do we treat do we treat other people as if they are just our tools to be used as we wish? Well, we could say much more, but we have to press on. Uh, the provision, uh, number six, the provision God made for man's physical needs is also important. He gave us food. Uh, the trees were good for food. And there's a, there's a provision there inescapably also for man's aesthetic needs. The trees in the, in the garden were pleasant for sight. Uh, man has built into him a capacity for beauty. Our mind needs order, needs to discover order and to understand it. There's an entertainment and a fascination that comes in that way. Uh, harmony, development, um, you know, there are some new forms of music that people call music that I can't recognize as music because I can't find any harmony or connection or form or order or beauty. And, and I, my own suspicion is, is that that only arises in a context where it's kind of an a, a, a extra higher level where people are basically reacting against very easily discerned forms of order. And so they... Uh, uh, they sound like a three-year-old with a pot and a spoon. <laughs> and uh, uh, really what they're crying out is for peace and, and needing more order. Uh, the beauty and form of God's holiness and of His Word and the unity of His truth, all of that uh, fascinates our minds and our hearts as well. Uh, the Christian life is something uh, that uh, also uh, God has made provision for. I'll say more about that in a moment. Seventh man is meant to work. Uh, we are not to meant. We are not meant to just lazy around. We are supposed to be busy. We are supposed to be uh, giving glory to God, not having indolence and ease. Um, and, and the Lord has equipped us for a physical life, and that involves inescapably a certain degree of manual labor and effort. Uh, there's an instinct about that in man. Uh, it's good for us to work with our hands. There's a dignity in working with our hands. Um, our first father kept the garden, maintained it, preserved it. Uh, and so there's a, 
a natural responsibility to look after the the order, the realm in which we've been given, and to to leave it better than we ourselves found it, passing it on to others in better condition. And there's also real dignity in that kind of labor. We we need to recognize that uh, Eden was not a little easy place to work. It was a garden, and gardens involve a lot of uh, a lot of work. Um, they're not just uh, places of passivity. Um, a lot of creativity is found uh, in manual labor even, certainly in the more broadly in the labor of man. Um, when talking about the workers who help prepare the tabernacle and the temple, um, the scriptures speak of the wisdom in their hands. And there really is wisdom in the use of tools and, and being able to, to uh, bridge that gap between the conception of what you can conceive in your mind and what you can produce with your hands. God has given glory in that, and we need to uh, recognize that that kind of labor is not inhuman, it's quite human, and has dignity. God also provided for man's development. There's an an instinct built in uh, interest, growing, pushing. Uh, Man was to colonize, to move out, not not just to stay in Eden. There's the implication of that in the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Not just fill up Eden. And so there was beyond Eden and a perception of that and a need to, uh, because of being made in the image of God, to fill all in all. A finite creature, yes we are, but, but even as finite creatures made in the image of the infinite one, we have a, we have a natural tendency to reach and to reach farther. And that's part of what, uh, we see in little children, but we also see it in, uh, down at NASA. Uh, it's a small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Uh, the spirit of adventure is uh, part of humanity and impacts all aspects of our lives, um, physical, mental, spiritual. And you know, folks that don't have that simple creational fact clearly in their minds, they can, they can get enormously confused. I can remember in seminary, uh, there were all these folks in seminary that almost at once got dramatic divine calls to go to the mission field, particularly to Australia. And uh, all these folks got the call the week after that movie Crocodile Dundee came out. <laughs> they all felt the call of God to go. And, and you need to recognize that um, the desire to go, the fascination with another culture... Uh, the um, the experiencing of it, the learning that comes through all all that's wonderful. It's very human. It's very good. Um, we're gonna go if we're human. The question is, are we gonna baptize and and make disciples? That that's a harder question. Not a lot of those missionaries worked out too well. I hate to say, some of them never made it because they actually weren't called to God. And you can have people that get confused between a natural tendency and uh, a call of God. You know, if uh, if I wanted to get all worked up about a dramatic missionary call, now where do you think I would get that call to go? Hmm, South Scotland. 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 To Scotland. I mean, I I, I could work that up fairly easily. Just give me a little haggis and toddies and neeps, and I, I could get all excited, you know, about going to But you have to discern. This is a question I face directly myself. You have to discern. Is this a call of me and my flesh? Or, you know, yes, I made in the image of God. Is it natural or is it supernatural? Is the Lord in His providence amazingly prepared the way for me to go? And, and the Lord answered that prayer for me quite dramatically, and He said no. 
he said, no, I had a church there that was interested in me going, and the Lord made it very clear to me from his word I could not go. And uh, so I did not go. And uh, it was not the Lord's time or purpose at that time. But uh, you, we need to recognize, you know, some people, some people, um, they get confused over this aspect of development in man. Um, uh, emotional growth and fascination and experience of new things. And they misunderstand that good natural human tendency and they want to throw out the scriptural principle and throw off the directions of God with regard to worship. And they just love the fascination of the experimental in public worship. And that may please them, but I, I have no confidence from the Bible that it pleases the Lord at all. He's uh, he's fairly straightforward in what he asked for in the Old Testament and also in the New. He wants the word read and preached and sung and prayed and seen. And uh, it's uh, fairly straightforward what we're supposed to do in worship. But people invent all kinds of things. And we have to be careful. Well, now, um, I can give you a for example, but I have to apologize to my mother first because I'm going I'm to deprecate some of my own history here, our own uh, family roots, I should say. But, you know, um, there is a tendency uh, for di- different ethnic tradition, national churches or churches from certain ethnic backgrounds, to insert cultural elements in worship. Um, and, and the sweetest one I can speak of is my own family's Moravian heritage. You know, um, the Moravians have a love feast, which I think everybody ought to do and ought to go see. But I, I think we ought to do it, but I think we ought to do it uh, after church one day in a fellowship time, not in public worship itself. But they hand out coffee. They hand out Moravian buns. They hand out candles. Uh, you sing Christmas carols, and you hold those candles up. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's a wonderful kind of thing. Uh, they have beautiful decorations. They have the best bands in the world, uh, beautiful brass bands to help lead corporate public singing. Um, their liturgies actually are impeccable because they're all 18th century straight out of the Bible. It's wonderful. But um, the Scots, for example, do you know the... Have you all heard of this thing in American Presbyterian churches called the Kirking of the Tartan? Mm-hmm. I saw that once. Um, actually, it was at a funeral. Um, they didn't ask my permission for it, but you know all these guys in skirts showed up, and they started marching in with daggers, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. And they went up to the front communion table, and I, I was trembling the entire time. I thought they were going to stick the dagger in the communion table. Uh, what they would do, though, was they went up and laid it down sideways with a thump. You know, and the guy would say, um, Klein Murray is here. You know, and you're like... What? Yeah, it was this brave heart kind of thing. It's the strangest ceremony I've ever seen. Well, that's a cultural thing, okay? And there are American churches that do this, and they do it kind of for cultural. Um, I, when I went to Scotland, uh, for the first three or four months we were over there, I kept thinking, you know, they do the strangest kind of Scottish things over here in the church. And and then you get kind of acclimated to that, and you take a deep breath, and you turn around and look back home, and you go, oh my, we do it too. We do American kind of stuff. And so I'm not trying to say culture's bad. Culture can be wonderful, but, but just in the area of worship, we have to make sure that we don't confuse, you know, natural tendencies with the spiritual requirement. People have taken the Lord's Supper, for example, and turned it into um, the equivalent of, uh, you know, wine and cheese party. What's the taste? What's the texture? Um, now, what kind of what kind of 
what kind of bread, what kind of wheat was the bread made out of. I mean, I sat and listened in seminary to two guys have this debate, not about grape juice versus wine. I was ready for that. It was a, it almost came to mortal blows over whether it should be wine or port. They were arguing over concentration of wine, of, of alcohol and, and color. And, um, you know, at some point I just thought, that's interesting. This, I don't see this anywhere in the pages of the book of the New <laughs> Testament, that kind of argument. So um, be careful because you can, uh, uh, we can confuse these developmental things that we like uh, and read them back on God. Uh, finally, the provision of man spiritually is also made. Item number nine here is we're running out of time. Uh, it can be difficult to see, but there is an example in Genesis 3.8 of man walking in the garden, uh, God walking in the garden with man in the cool of the day. Uh, don't underestimate uh, taking a walk with the Lord and the communion and the conversation and etc. that goes on with that. Uh, we see it also in Jacob's ladder to look to look elsewhere. Adam enjoyed special revelation from God. You know, when you're on a walk with someone, uh, there's not utter silence. You can ask almost about anything. Uh, Some subjects are best discussed with vigorous uh, movement and exercise involved. And uh, if you ask a silly question, it can be left back on the previous block, and that's okay. You can grow and move in your conversation. And and, um, there was divine self-disclosure in the garden as Adam uh, fellowship with the Lord. Uh, the tree of life is there. It's uh, not magical. It's mysterious. It was meant to bow the mind of man. There's a covenant sign and seal there of what Adam had uh, held out to him by God that he might yet obtain uh, by the mercy of God, the kindness of God, by, by uh, obedience in the uh, covenant of works. The tree was a means for spiritual uh, life and growth in primitive man. Now, now let me say, I'll pass this around, let y'all pass that around. I thought those were cookies that you were going to have to hand out. Okay. Um, uh, Let me say just a few things here. I need to move on to something. Gender distinction. We have to understand that there are a number of distinctions in the opening chapters of Genesis. Man is contrasted and compared to animals, earth, to heavens, day and night. So it's not surprising that there's a distinction even within man on the level level of gender. And let me just forcefully say that there is a difference in role distinction versus value. Don't ever forget that. Um, When the church has been muted about this fact and has acted along with the culture of the 19th century that the strong man who can pull himself up by his bootstraps and by the sweat of his brow can make something of himself and that gets associated particularly with the male gender Uh, what that does is set you up you limit yourself to that you wedge yourself to that um, and and women are trod upon in in the culture then you set yourself up in the next century for uh, the wrath of God to be expressed the chastisement of God in the culture Um, You know, there was a day and an age where a woman could not own a house. I mean, we need to take a deep breath and recognize how bad it was. That's just not right. Uh, It's just, uh, it's the same thing, I will digress here. I I did grow up in South Carolina, and... um, you know, you, every state has, every country has history that you have to grapple with. We're all sinners. Countries are not Christian per se. Uh, people in them might be more or less. And, and um, uh, as, a, as a young man in seminary, I had to come face to face with 
19th century uh, people from my home state that had written some wonderful things about God and they had uh, mishandled other human beings in their own in their own homes and in their own country. Uh, the legacy of chattel slavery in this country is uh, is heartbreaking uh, in its uh, uh, theological basis and implication. Even the finest of men who tried to muse on that were children of their own day. They did not understand the covenant of grace well or the covenant of works in enough detail. They didn't understand creation well. They also didn't understand about God. In the covenant of redemption, God out of justice and right. God the Father promised to reward the Son for His work of obedience. And where there is labor, justice demands reward. That's the whole basis of the covenant system. The covenant of redemption and the inter-Trinitarian in the covenant of works with regard to man and even in the covenant of grace. We're not rewarded in the covenant of grace with salvation because of our work, we're rewarded because of Christ's work, His active and passive obedience. And um, there was something fundamentally wrong and a misunderstanding of the inherent dignity of man and a misunderstanding of uh, the fact that uh, honor should be given because we're, because we're human, even though there is a different role relationship. It's very important for everyone to understand um, the lesson that's taught uh, as a child when you do the school play and uh, everybody gets to switch around roles. <laughs> um, you get to play several roles at different times as you audition and therefore you learn the difference between value and role distinction. But there are also in gender distinctions ontological differences. Um, I can remember in my hometown, Aiken, South Carolina, there was uh, right next to the city hall, there was a little, little uh, uh, set of shops there in the main town and, and at one time... Um, there was a shop uh, that was selling, um, I think it was used stuff, and uh, uh, the logo on the front, they were trying to contrast the difference between the high price of something new and the low price of something used, and it was two little, two little uh, uh, toddlers, uh, each of them in a diaper, and each of them kind of pulling out and looking at their diaper and going, there is a difference. That was their little motto. <laughs> and uh, there is an ontological difference between men and women. We, we live in an age, strangely, strangely, that wants to deny that ontological difference. Um, if you had told me in, in high school, in junior high school, or in college, what would have happened that is happening today with people trying to change ontologically their bodies and even their souls... Um, it, uh, it boggles the mind. But, but there are real distinctions here. We can change ourselves in some outward way, but down on the inward, even on the physical level, the microscopic way, we can't change. And that doesn't change the fact that there's a, a value um, to men and to women which is united. I, I, will, uh, I will pass and say that with regard to Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate emphasizes marriage, and replenishing the earth in its way, the subduing and having dominion, labor, and then also Sabbath. These are these are basic biblical principles implied even before the Ten Commandments are given uh, in the Book of Exodus for the first time. Uh, and our bodies, we, we need to uh, wake up and realize that even even at five thirty in the morning, when you look in the mirror and you wash your face, uh, the body is inherently good. Um, that we are not naturally mortal. That this is a consequence of sin. Um, 
there is no necessary inherent conflict for human being between body and souls. We do have a conflict. We do have tension. But that's because of sin. But it's not necessary to, a, to us, to human being. And uh, the body does become depraved. Uh, it becomes um, given over to unrighteousness and there's damage. But yet, even in the grave, it's still the body of that person. My father's body lies in the grave in North Carolina. His soul is with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have every confidence. And one day, but that body there is his body, and it's to be given dignity. That's why we do burial. Uh, We do it out of continuing appreciation for and recognition of the image of God, even down the level of the body. And the resurrection is also bodily. Um, There are some Christian traditions that tend to forget that. I know in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, in some of the most intensely Orthodox countries. I've witnessed it myself talking with Christian people in class uh, um, about the resurrection of Jesus and that it was bodily. And I had I had a whole half a room, half Baptists on this side and Eastern Orthodox priests with lots of jewelry and everything on this side. And I got to the bodily resurrection and there was this murmuring in, in Hungarian that I didn't understand. It was Hungarian, Transylvanian, uh, Transylvanian uh, Orthodox guys. And they leaned up and one of them, oldest one, raised his hand, Dr. Rankin, through a translator, he said, did you say bodily resurrection of Jesus? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, we hadn't noticed that. They were so caught up in the mysticism of it all, in their system, that they missed the bodily resurrection. Uh, And so the bodily resurrection of other people was, was a bit ambiguous. I asked one of my students there, I said, tell me what heaven is for you here. And he thought for a moment and he said, Heaven is sitting on, the cl- on a cloud and being spoon-fed borscht soup by your grandmother. Hmm. And it was some kind of cultural, you know, ideal. But it had no relationship to the body, really. It was just some evaporated ideal. All right, the soul is differentiated from the body. The soul doesn't die. It lives on. And the dismembered state has continuing identity, consciousness, memory, and the two go together. Now, oh my, I'm gonna have to, you're gonna to have to be patient. I'm gonna skip a little ahead and I'm gonna shock you. Give me just give me just three minutes. This is gonna whet your appetite for next time, alright? Um, one of the questions that we face traditionally is where does the soul come from? Now I want you to listen to this hymn. This is a hymn that I'm going to play for you. An American hymn, a 19th century American hymn. And I'm hoping you can hear it. Let's let's hope you can hear it. I think you'll be fascinated. If I can find a little there, here we go.
and do this and cut it back on. Uh, this is a 19th century American hymn. It was written in 1845 by Eliza Snow. And uh, you've heard the first, uh, the first verse. Uh, it's set to the tune of Gentle Annie, which was an Irish ballad uh, written just a few years before this. It swept the country. It's a very sentimental kind of song about a, 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 a young, young Irish lad who's, who's, I think, girlfriend or fiancé or, or new wife. She died, and he, he's hanging out by her grave, and he's all upset he's not going to see her again. It's all about, um, it's about love and loss and grief. And uh, very, a tearjerker, you know, tearjerker kind of song. And that tune just kind of is a little haunting. It's very Celtic. O my Father, Thou that dwellest in the high and glorious place, when shall I regain Thy presence and again behold Thy face? What's a little funny about that? Regain Thy presence and again behold Thy face. That's a little funny. In Thy holy habitation did my spirit once reside. In my first primeval childhood was I nurtured near Thy side. This is Brigham Young's favorite hymn. Let's listen a little more. She wrote this poem in uh, 1845 and included in it the theology that he had begun quietly teaching and that later kind of blossomed out in their in their uh, in their books here and there and it's going through a revival now in, Rome, in uh, uh, Mormon circles okay. and they reason from the word Father. I learned to call thee Father through thy Spirit from on high. Now, now that lets you know. There's some kind of distinction between Father and Spirit, but don't misunderstand and think that's the Trinity, okay, in any classic sense. But until the key of knowledge was restored, I knew not why. Who was the key of knowledge? Joseph Smith. Yeah, Joseph Smith. Smith. Yeah. yeah. So he's the guy that brought the rest of the story, or new layers of stories to add onto. And you have to remember with the Mormons, they do not believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. It's actually the crudest of the books. Insofar as it's translated correctly. And, and, and its transmission is flawed. And, and actually, they will use liberal, Protestant, biblical studies guys and their arguments to try to uh, discredit biblical texts. 
clear the ground so the Book of Mormon and the Doctrines and Covenants and the Book of Abraham that they came up with are, are uh, given the primal place, the first place. But notice this language here. Um, in the heavens are parents single. From the word Father, and that we are ch- God's children, they reason there must be a mother. And so it tells me I've got a mother there. We won't listen to the rest of it, but uh, the the singer looks forward. All the singers in the church, they look forward when they lay their body down that their souls will go back. Actually, they say spirits. Their spirits will go back to the realm they came from. They will have accomplished uh, uh, the mission that they had been sent on, so they get kind of ascended and promoted. Uh, and that has ontological implications. They get they get better physically than they were before, more powerful. For the royal courts on high, when I've completed length all that you sent me to do, with your mutual approbation, father and mother both, let me come and dwell with you. And that's not a single, that's a plural. That's y'all. <laughs> so, this is a tantalizing introduction to the classic question of what is the origin of the human soul in the Mormons? have an unbiblical false teaching of the origin of the human soul. And so next time we're together, we're going to look at the proper biblical doctrine of the origin of the soul. So, go home. See, if you were teenagers, I would be telling you. Now, don't go home and tell your parents that I studied Mormon uh, heresy with you. But uh, let that kind of whet your appetite for coming back and learning of the proper doctrine from the Bible. And don't be taken in by cute music. (laughs) All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back together.